Hello and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm John. And I'm Andy. We've assembled a list of hundreds of movie scores that are considered worth talking about, and we've been assigning them to ourselves by random drawing. And this time, the luck of the draw gave us Mark Knopfler's score for the 1987 fantasy adventure fairy tale movie, The Princess Bride. The Princess Bride was produced by Andrew Scheinman and Rob Reiner, and executive produced by Norman Lear. The screenplay was written by William Goldman based on his novel, and it was directed by Rob Reiner. John, remind us about The Princess Bride. Well, The Princess Bride is the title of a storybook story, which is read by a grandfather to his sick grandchild. It's got fencing, fighting, chases, escapes, true love, the works. Doesn't sound too bad. <laughs> it stars Carrie Elways, Robin Wright, Mandy Patinkin, Wallace Shawn, and Andre the Giant, Christopher Guest, Chris Sarandon, Billy Crystal and Carol Kane, Peter Falk and Fred Savage. You know who's in it. It's the Princess Bride. Yeah, all of my favorites. So will Buttercup be rescued by her true love, Wesley, before she's forced to marry this scheming Prince Humperdinck? Will Inigo Montoya finally exact his revenge on Count Rugen for murdering his father? Will Fred Savage, the grandson... <laughs> I don't think that character's name is Fred Savage. Kevin? Yeah, I think that character's name is Kevin, yes. Will he be eventually charmed by the story his grandfather, Peter Falk, reads to him, even though it's got some kissing in it? Come back tomorrow and maybe I'll read it again for you. Yes. Good enough? Good enough. All right. I don't think it serves us or our listeners for us to beat around the bush. Let's talk directly about what makes this a peculiar choice for us. There's a bush, Andy? <laughs> what's what's behind this bush? I suspect people might be surprised to learn that there's a bush because uh, who doesn't love the Princess Bride? All right, I mean, here's the first bush. You said on the last episode and you just said now and you apparently are going to keep saying the Princess Bride. The Princess Bride. <laughs> but to me, this movie is called... The Princess Bride. Yeah, well, that's probably because I uh, came to know this title as a morpheme unto itself. <laughs> yeah. And wasn't clocking it as an adjective describing a noun. That is truly the sign of a beloved childhood movie. Yes. Is that you just hear it as da dun da dun dunk in your head. Right. I think I've told you for so many years I heard that title as The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> I don't know what a strikes back is, but it sounds correct to say it that way. I have since corrected it in my head. But yes, I get it. The Princess Bride. Da, 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 da. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm not going to join you in that, but I understand where that's coming from. No, here's what we need to talk about at the beginning. Yeah. At some point, we were chatting about the show, things we could do, different episodes. And I said a topic that suggests itself sometimes is, you know, great scores that are hidden in bad movies, basically. We've talked about a few of those. We've talked about a few of those. And that's actually pretty common. You have these really talented composers. They get some job on a movie that turns out to be schlocky, but they write really interesting music. Soundtrack collectors know that the world of soundtracks is just filled with that. Not actually that interesting. <laughs> What I thought might be more interesting is what are the worst scores in great movies? And as soon as I said that to you, you said, well, I know what I would say. And I said, yeah, I think I agree. I think we have the same thing in mind. And we both said, the Princess Bride. <laughs> Did we actually say it at the same time? I don't remember. We were at a restaurant. We were getting yeah, drinks. Yeah, yeah, it was over pizza. It was like we were just in immediate agreement. Yeah, yeah. The Princess Bride is a great movie with a bad score. Uh, yeah. So now here we are 
it is on our list because this is, I just want to be totally frank about this. This is our first <laughs> listener suggestion score that came up. And when it was suggested, I remember we were typing it into the spreadsheet, the bucket. That's right. We had a little exchange. Like, do we really want to do this? Do people want to hear us say negative things about their favorite movie? We decided, and I think correctly, that whatever we had to say would be interesting for us and hopefully that would make it interesting for the listener we both love the movie so we can do this so we are going to do this now in that spirit but how do you feel about this john <laughs> yeah i mean look i feel bad because this is rightfully a beloved movie which i have known nothing but beloved for since i was you know kevin's age you know he grew up i remember that kid grew up so yeah i feel i feel bad for listeners tuning in for a bit of you know comfort food about a movie they love and hearing us have negative things to say about it but having to do that is also maybe making me face up to <laughs> the worth of the negative things that i might have to say about this music because how bad can it be i love this movie everybody does yes exactly and that makes me think well, golly, what have we been talking about this whole show? Like, what? <laughs> how can it be that we can, you know, spend so many hours talking about how important great film music is to great movies and running down movies when we think that their music isn't holding up their end of the bargain and come to this movie and let it stay in the pantheon of cherished beloved movies, which it absolutely should stay in and still come to terms with uh, it just not being <laughs> good music. Well, how can it be? Yeah, well, you know, I have some uh, philosophy questions about this, too, in, in a similar spirit. But I think that probably some amount of our listenership is now saying, what do you mean it's bad? Uh, so I think that we should just lay out where that came from in the first place before we have conversations about whether we stand by it. Yeah. Remember when I said when we were talking about Lawrence of Arabia? Look, listen to this music. This is not good music right where uh, peter o'toole is thinking through the yeah, night I remember. Yeah. come on this is all right so what cue are you playing now the, i mean uh, throw a dart here look they're climbing up the cliffs of insanity if you just heard this music on its own i don't think you'd have trouble <laughs> I don't think you'd feel morally put upon or guilty to, to say, yeah, it's, that's not very good. <laughs> I mean, if you had to quantify, you know, if you're the composition teacher who has to red pen things, like what kind of notes are you making here to say what you're saying is not good about it? Uh, well, I mean, kind of like I said about that one Q in Lawrence of Arabia, it's threadbare of ideas. It is merely a diminished chord, and then it's just noodling up and down, mostly up in this case for the Cliffs of Insanity. I mean, the kind of stuff that I also, you know, was critical of Max Steiner for doing in King Kong, but Max Steiner at least, you know, really knew how to orchestrate things and had, you know, actual expert musical chops to realize it. This is it's just thin. I mean, it should be said right at the outset that this is performed almost entirely on a synthesizer. There are only two musicians performing the entire score, one of whom is Mark Knopfler, who is a very skilled guitarist and is playing the guitar, a real acoustic guitar in many cues. Which, it should be said, is definitely a highlight of the score, is when Mark Knopfler is playing his acoustic guitar on this melody. 
Right. And the other musician is named Guy Fletcher. He's Mark Knopfler's longtime keyboardist, was a keyboardist in Dire Straits, Mark Knopfler's band. Yeah. Dire Straits. Dire Straits scored this movie. Did you know that? <laughs> well, huh, it's such a disconnect. But why, why did Dire Straits get this job? Maybe we'll talk about that later. Anyway. So Guy Fletcher, keyboardist, is playing pretty much everything else. Everything that sounds like an orchestra is a synthesized orchestra. And for the most part, it's pretty clear that it's a synthesized orchestra. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a Casio keyboard. Even I think to 1987 ears, I would like to think that this sounded rinky-dink and chintzy, right? Well, that's an issue in itself because in 1987, it was very common for scores to be synthesizer heavy, if not exclusively played on synthesizer. But it, I don't think it was common for those synthesizer instruments to really just be pretending that they were orchestral instruments. If you're going to have synthesizer elements in your score, they were going to sound like synthetic sound. You know, a very popular listener suggestion that is many times over in the bucket now is uh, Blade, Runner. Blade Runner. That's a classic 80s synthy score, but it sounds very right. synthy. And if we talk about that, we'll talk about what kinds of meaning you can get out of those explicitly synthetic sounds. That's what I'm saying. Intentionally synthetic sound. Right. Whereas this... He's just really scoring this movie with the crummy strings patch on the Casio keyboard you had in the 80s. I bet it wasn't a Casio, but yes, this is just the best they could do at imitating various instruments, which... Yes, if you had a Casio keyboard in those days, you knew the strings in particular sounded really, really fake. The brass did not sound good either. Well, in some uses, here's where the brass sounds really fake. This is uh, Prince Humperdinck being announced. And we see actual trumpets. We see, you know, acoustic instruments on screen while we're hearing <laughs> Yeah, this. that's a real disconnect. But, you know, I did think that when Inigo Montoya is asking his father's spirit to guide his sword and we hear this kind of mellower trumpet sound, or probably it's supposed to be a flugelhorn, I thought, this isn't bad. This isn't a bad patch, as the patches go for 1987. Yeah, this is better. Anyway, yes, that string sound is being played on a keyboard. He's layering over himself, one guy playing a bunch of different parts. And back to the composition critique, a lot of times it sounds like he didn't compose in advance to make sure that the lines <laughs> added up in relationship to each other. He just kept uh, adding stuff until he felt done. Right. And sometimes that means you can do things that are internally inconsistent or aren't proper complements to each other and leave holes in your texture or... Right. Also, when you're composing this stuff at the keyboard and playing it in with your hands on a, you know, a fake piano keyboard, you're tempted to just play chords in the patch the way that you would play chords in the piano. But the way that you stack notes together when you're writing for actual orchestral instruments, a string section is different <laughs> than where the notes lie under your fingers on the piano. So it's just another dimension of phoniness that you can hear is it's trying to make you think that they're strings, but they're clearly not being played as strings would be played. Right, this is the sword fight sequence. And it's just not really done in orchestral writing where you would have one violin section playing a unison line and then another violin section a couple octaves above it playing little shrieks and no cello set you know there's no lower strings there's no body to this string texture 
just doesn't really exist in orchestral writing, you would fill out the space. It doesn't exist because it doesn't sound good. <laughs> you know, the way an orchestra is built is, it's not an accident, it's not an arbitrary collection of things, it's what musicians took hundreds of years to figure out what things sounded good together. So let's just let that bit of the conversation stand for where we were coming from when we said this is a bad score in a great movie. I know that I reached some point in my life where I started caring about movie scores and paying attention to them. Let's say high school or college age. I reached some age where I looked back at this movie and thought, whoa, for a movie that I love and have such great associations with, full of fun and exciting and adventurous fairy tale fantasy stuff, it's not living up to any of my expectations for that. The music isn't. The music isn't, yeah. And it really seemed like a glaring surprise failure to be what I had come to be such a fan of. And so that is how I filed it away in my head as this big disappointment, this pointedly disappointing score. But I hadn't watched the movie in, I don't know, 15, 20 years. When I watched it recently, I thought, I haven't watched this in a long, long time. So I have some new thoughts. And when you feel like we've said enough about the <laughs> criticism, I do want to have that philosophical argument where we ask, what are we even talking about? <laughs> All right, well, let's do it. We've played a bunch of the music here now. I said that, you know, the Knopfler on the guitar theme is a highlight of the score. You want me to play another thing that I would call a highlight of the score? Sure. I think the theme for Inigo's backstory and his father and the revenge and the sword mm -hmm. is a very nice theme. I think it sounds exactly like V.C. D'Arte, the uh, famous aria from Tosca. Mm -hmm. But uh, <laughs> that's fine. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like an operatic backstory that he's got. Yeah. Classic revenge. Exactly right. I really doubt it. <laughs> it was an intentional reference that way. I think it's just a way you can make a pretty tune, and I think it's a pretty tune, and I think it does cast the right mood of mythic importance to, you know, how Inigo thinks of his revenge. And hey, you know what other musical moment I actually like quite a bit is the introduction of the friendship between Inigo and Fezzik when mm -hmm. we first see them on the boat. Mm -hmm. This very simple little do-do-do-do thing. Plop. Yep. It's friendly. It has a little melancholy to it, but it also is charming, and I think it hits just the right note of, we like these guys, even though they seem to be cutthroats. I agree. Yeah. The thing about the music in this movie is that as much as it kind of doesn't know what it's doing, a lot of the times it really knows what it's doing. I completely agree with that, and I think that uh, there are some forms of knowing what you're doing that are more important than others. Yeah. So yeah, let's talk about what matters and what doesn't matter. <laughs> okay. 
Yeah, you earlier asked, you said that it made you wonder, what are we even talking about on this show if (laughs) it doesn't matter? The question that it made me ask is, on what grounds would you be saying that something is bad if it clearly works, the movie works, and it's beloved because it works, so what other standard could possibly matter. Well, I mean, we have to say that the screenplay for this movie is inspired and the casting is terrific. And Oh, watching it this time, I thought this is the best cast movie of all time. This Possibly. is amazing casting. The two of them in the lead, both of them unknowns at that point, right? it is astounding that they found those two people and matched them up. It really is. And this calls for a cast of very character-y character actors as well. And they got exactly the right ones. Yeah, with a lot of weird risks that just paid off perfectly. Like right. Wallace Shawn is just, you know, a really weird character, mostly just playing an exaggerated version of his own his own <laughs> way of talking. And Andre the Giant is not in any way, and I mean, I guess wrestlers are actors, but he was not an actor. <laughs> he was just a giant. It's certainly not a talking one. <laughs> right. And Mandy Patinkin, there could not be a better use of Mandy Patinkin as like <laughs> a simple one-dimensional fairy tale character just like completely infused with passion about his one thing. It's perfect. No, it's true. And William Goldman is empirically a screenwriting genius. It was his original material in the novel, which the novel has kind of a slightly different flavor to it, but he knew exactly what things to extract out of the novel and how to adapt it for the screen. Yeah, I actually think that the screenplay is almost an improvement on the novel because the novel has a pained, kind of a frustrated quality. The frame is him as an adult feeling like life just doesn't measure up to his fantasies of fairy tales from when he was a kid, and that's why he obsessively returns to this beloved imaginary book. And in the movie, that bitter element has really been taken out and the frame still gets to be meta, but it's really just about this, you know, beautiful experience of family sharing a story and the kid acting like he doesn't have any tolerance for the notion of love, but then at the end being won over. It's purified of this kind of anxious, cranky element that is interesting in the original book, but I think there's something even smarter in the screenplay. Yeah, well, smart, if you stop and think about it, it's kind of incredible how groundbreaking this movie was in terms of establishing, yeah, that meta framing where we're aware of both the story and the storyteller. You see that, you know, everywhere today. Sitcoms, How I Met Your Mother, and Drunk History, I was thinking, (laughs) uh, starring, of course, the great Craig Kukowski, whose podcast Craig's List wound up being the genesis for our show. Uh, And he's one of the ensemble players on Drunk History. Thank you, Craig. But I I really was thinking that Drunk History owes an incredible amount to the Princess Bride because the idea that we're seeing the story being told, but we know who's telling it too. Yeah. The teller is also a character and the character who is telling it gets to be the subject of fun as well. This absolutely set the mold for that, I think, in a super important way. So those are the reasons why the movie is beloved because it's a wonderful cast with wonderful performances and a wonderful script. So So you're basically saying that it's so good that it can get away with having having music that isn't up to snuff it just ends up not mattering because the movie is so strong in every other respect you think that's the explanation well i think that is manifestly at least part of the explanation it is definitely getting away with music that is not up to snuff but like i hinted before i think there are some elements of the music that do know what they're doing that we should maybe try to suss out all right well i'm gonna peel back the lid on my 
new adult take on this score. Okay. Which is, I don't know that there's anything really to criticize because it does what it should do. Okay. Well, what is that? Let's just set aside technical orchestrational kinds of complaints. Let's let the craft be a separate issue in terms of what kind of scoring the movie gets, in what spirit, Mm -hmm. with what amount of seriousness versus deliberate cliche and tropiness. All of the choices in those dimensions are pretty on the mark, and I do think that they are making this movie the movie that we all know and love. And so my question to myself was, what's the complaint? What status does a complaint about, well, that's not what you're supposed to do with strings, really have if if it works? And I do think it works. And I want to hear from you. Do you think that any of that stuff affects whether it's working? I think in parts it does. But yeah, I agree with you about the spirit, the canniness about where to show up and how funny to be is pretty dead on. And what I wanted to say about this score is that it's really well spotted. Yeah, and it's unusually spotted too, right? Much of it is not in three or four minute cues that sort of start and then end. Inhale this, but do not touch. It's like a lot of little hits mm-hmm. in and then out, and then oh, it come back smell, in after 20 seconds of dialogue. It, is odorless, it struck me as being spotted like an old radio melodrama where there would be a guy at the organ who would hit the beats that needed extra melodrama with a sting. Sure. And I think that that style of scoring and indeed of spotting is deliberate because of the effect it has of reminding you of the trope more than the drama itself. So maybe we should say spotting, I'm using it as a kind of a general term for the decision-making process of where is the music going to be? When's it going to start? When's it going to stop? And what should it be doing when it's there? Yeah, I think those decisions are pretty across the board, very well observed and right. Yeah. And with the spirit of this self-parody of a fairy tale, but also a genuine fairy tale that we actually love anyway. Right. The spirit of this is very subtle and very important. The tone of this movie. Yeah. I heard that Rob Reiner told the actors, this is a comedy, but we're going to play it straight. And you should think of it like you have a hand of cards that you keep really close to the vest But every now and then, you deliberately let the audience have a little peek at one of your cards. And that's a very subtle tone. And Mark Knopfler gets it. It just seems so clear that he gets what that tone is and how the movie is supposed to play. And that is not to be taken for granted. Yeah, so uh, let's play some examples of that. You know, right off the top, I said that this guitar love theme is a pretty theme. And, you know, the first bits of scoring that we hear... About Buttercup and Wesley the Farm Boy His name was and saying as you wish. You know, the very first minutes of the movie. Mm-hmm. This sounds good. Yeah, it's really good. And he's playing through Nothing this simple, pretty melody. But he Farm makes boy. sure that he is sensitive Farm to Farm the beats. I mean, listen to the little moments of hesitation, of Farm anticipation boy. that he builds in when Buttercup asks Wesley to reach for the water pitcher above his head. Fetch me that pitcher. 
He walks over to her and he's looking in her eyes and just as he goes to reach for it, the music gives it this little tension and resolve and it's drawing the right contour for the scene. And then the chord resolves and it bang, hits the cut right to the two of them kissing, silhouetted by the beautiful sunset. Hold it, hold it. What is this? Are you trying to trick me? And then even the moment that it gets interrupted by Fred Savage interrupting the story is well negotiated. Right. It gets a laugh there because it's swelling. Yeah. You have to be going with it for it to be funny that it gets interrupted. Exactly. It has to have actually drawn you in. And I do think... You know, Mark Knopfler is one of the great pop guitarists. I mean, he's a really good guitarist, and his sense for this kind of dreamy, dewy, fairy tale romance sound that you can get out of the acoustic guitar on this, as you say, extremely pure, simple melody is great. As soon as that cue starts, he says, Buttercup grew up on a farm, and we cut from the bedroom to the fairy tale field where she's riding on horseback, and immediately... ...and tormenting the farm boy that worked there. His name was West. This guitar comes in, and you know exactly where you are. You're in the dream of fairy tale romance, the most purified sort of form of that. But I could imagine that if you wanted to get somebody to score your movie because he was a great pop guitar player, that he just wants to play his pop guitar all over it without being sensitive to the rhythms and the beats in the movie. But Knopfler here is incredibly sensitive to the timing and the space spaces between the notes and between when the music should be there. Here's just another little very canny, charming little hesitation where there's a hole in the music when Fezzik and Inigo are doing their rhyming game on the ship. The music waits for Fezzik to come up with the rhyme charm. Probably he means no harm. He's very, very short on charm. You have a great gift for rhyme. Yes. <laughs> it's setting the pace and it's telling you when we're walking along and when we stop walking along for just a second to look at something. Yeah, you're right. The, the tempo setting in each scene is just right. Yeah, the tempo. He knows when it should be fast and when it should be slow. He knows when it should start slow and then go fast. Like the next great scene, that's everybody's favorite scene. Or it was my favorite scene anyway. We've already talked about how my sword fighting is my favorite. This is obviously the germ of why I came to think that. <laughs> this great sword fight between Carrie Ellis and Mandy Patinkin, which is totally them sword fighting. They're doing all their own sword fighting. They actually learned to do it. Very impressive. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's Mandy Patinkin doing a flip, but otherwise it is really them. Otherwise, yeah, all the fencing is real. The sword fight starts. First, Knopfler hits the sword clang. He's right on the instance when they hit their swords against each other. And it's this stop-start feeling. Mm-hmm. With the castanets in between, right? Right. It's like, fight, fight, fight. Take a breath. Now the fight kind of starts in earnest. And then he goes into a rhythm that he keeps up. He's kind of cranked up to the right rhythm for the scene, just the same way that the sword fighters kind of ramped up their intensity into it. But for the next fight, when Carrie West fights Fezzik, the giant, he keeps this music very slow-paced.
Yeah, it's like cliche giant units. It's a synthesized bassoon patch. Yeah, classic big guy. Look, are you just fiddling around with me or what? I mean, this is part of what I'm saying. These are all cliches, and the music really embraces and takes pleasure in how cliched and yeah. hokey a lot of these musical ideas are. It's not trying to be better than the hokey thing that it's referring to. It's trying to be like a silent movie organist. Yeah. This is just what the guy in the movie house is playing on the Wurlitzer as a movie goes by and improvising it. And that's why it doesn't have more to say than that and isn't better composed than that. And maybe that's okay because that's the tradition to which we are alluding. I think that's right. I think, though, that this isn't the guy in the Wurlitzer improvising to the movie. I think this is like the third time that the guy in the Wurlitzer plays along with the movie and he's really paid attention to the beats. That's the best guy, right? The one who preps. Exactly. It's the guy who's going to do a mostly improvised score, but has prepped and knows exact rhythm for Andre the Giant slamming Carrie Elways on his back into the rock as he's being choked out. I just feel when you give me so much trouble. Why is that? Do you think? and knows where to fall on those hits. It's just like a slightly preternaturally well-prepared <laughs> improvised organ score. All right, so the devil's advocate question is, should it be any better than that? <laughs> Wouldn't it lose some of the overall effect that this score has? The critique that it is thin and lazy and has errors in it just starts to seem really out of line. I don't think Mark Knopfler can't tell the difference. I think this has been very much chosen as the way this movie needs to be played. Back to the tone of the movie, I think the magic of it is that what it's about is our relationship to fantasy, what fantasy is worth to people, and it's such a special movie because it's very open about the fact that fantasy is flimsy nonsense. It's absurd, but we are able to invest it with all this meaning. It's this gossamer uh, stuff. I love the word gossamer, but I can't think of a noun to stick it to. <laughs> uh, it's appropriate, you know, it's... Uh... <laughs> It's deeply meaningful, but it uh, doesn't mean anything. <laughs> it's deeply meaningful, and there's a lot of movies that kind of present fantasy, present it in a defensive way, where it's like, why can't life be like this? Or here comes reality again. This is what I said about the novel. It has this kind of, oh, if only, if only life weren't as compromised and difficult as it really is. But this movie has this kind of joyous, you know, yes, this is all hokum. This is all cornball. You've seen it all before. And yet... It's the magic stuff. It's the magic stuff of fantasies and stories, and it's stock stuff. I mean, these are all, to some degree, stock characters, or it's these paper dolls. Yeah. If the movie had actual swashbuckler music, like by Korngold for the sword fight, if it had big music that played the scope and wonder of this fantasy, it would fall apart. The movie wouldn't be doing what it's doing anymore. It would be making a claim that would immediately make everything look chintzy and stupid because it's not even a very high-budget movie. You can sort of see that this is an economy version of a lot of this stuff. You're amazing. I ought to be after 20 years. But I think a big reason why that is so charming and comes off so well is we're not being told that this is a real story that is happening. 
we're being told this is a story that's being told to somebody. But that's what all stories are. And this is just the movie that kind of smilingly and relaxedly tells us, yes, that's what a fantasy is. You know, other things that have used the framing device, as you said, tend to be kind of critical. But there's nothing critical about it. There's just an acknowledgement. It disarms any... Yeah, you're right. It's disarming. It disarms any criticism you could have of errors in the story or absurdities or something doesn't look right or whatever. Because the point is, that's not why stories matter. Stories matter because your grandfather tells them to you and you're transported into them. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah, Fred Savage is being transported into this story. We could well imagine that the chintzy set that they do their sword fight over and, you know, all the rest of the ways that this movie looks low budget. Well, sure, that's how he's imagining it. This is all a movie that's playing in his head as his grandfather reads a book to him. And I was wondering whether, in a way, that kind of explains and even excuses the chintziness of the sounds of these synthetic instruments. Because, you know, what's the very first sounds that you hear in this movie? <laughs> uh-huh. It's Take Me Out to the Ball Game. It's Take Me Out to the Ball Game, the 8-bit version. Mm-hmm. As he's playing, uh, what game is it? It's Hardball, and he's playing it on the Commodore 64, <laughs> although you don't see a Commodore 64, but I recognize that screen very well. <laughs> bloop, bloop, bloop. Little roller up along first. Gets by Buckner. I think a lot of listeners will care, and I'm just going to be clear. That is not the actual soundtrack from the Commodore game Hardball. <laughs> that is Take Me Out to the Ball game that they have laid over it. There was actual music in that game that sounded entirely different. I think it's such a fun trivia question about this movie that the song credits for this movie, <laughs> if you watch the credits all the way yeah. to the end, it credits exactly two songs that appear in this movie. One of them is the song that's sung over the uh, end credits. Right, which is where the love theme originally comes from. We can talk about that song in a minute. Sure. The kind of the main theme of the movie, which of course that's one of the songs. And the second song is Take Me Out to the Ball Game," <laughs> because you hear it for one second at the very first thing that you hear in the movie. Anyway, that's the world of this kid lying in bed sick. You know, is there some way in which the music that we're hearing is this story being cast through the prism of, you know, his 1987 land of counterpain, which is his computer game. And that's why it sounds like this. I don't buy that at all, but it's neat, and I'll let you have it. <laughs> I mean, I don't think that's why Knopfler chose to do it with the synth instruments, but I think it's kind of there to think about. All right, well, my stretch version of that, which has nothing to do with his video game, but it has to do with 1987, is, as I've been saying, that this is the 1987 telling of a mostly timeless but also distinctly old-fashioned thing, and the 1987 version of uh, Silent Movie Organ is this synthesis. You know, if they put an actual Silent movie organ in there that would be very kind of arch and conspicuous but what's a very natural thing in 1987 if someone was going to sit and accompany a movie yeah it would be on this synth i think it would feel weird if the music were less relaxed about 
being from what time it's from. I think that the movie gains from the fact that this really is what you get when someone sits down to score this movie in 1987. I think if it were trying harder in any direction, you'd feel that and you would lose some of the wonderful sense yeah. of congenial, you know. Yeah, if it were trying harder, then you would expect more from it and because yeah like you said your expectations have been disarmed you can appreciate the goofiness of it at the same time as the sincerity yeah a little more about hardball (laughs) yeah if you watch fred savage is not doing well he is losing to the computer because that is a hard game that is not something you can just pick up and win (laughs) which implies that he only just recently got sick he he looks like he's not doing that bad he he does look like he's okay hey andy speaking of being homesick in bed maybe we should uh... yeah let's acknowledge how apropos this movie is as our selection of the week yeah it's everyone's favorite sick day movie and we're all having an extended sick day yeah to put it mildly you know i thought should we talk about this on the show because people listen to these episodes long after they come out so in a few years maybe we don't need to talk about what's going on but then i thought you know even in a few years people will see the date on this they'll remember i think people are going to remember what was going on i I think so and uh yeah we would certainly hope all of our listeners are doing well staying home and getting through this it absolutely came about serendipitously but after we pulled this out of the bucket last time we realized that Boy, a lot of people are going to be essentially homesick or home... Home not sick, hopefully. Exactly. We're home so that other people don't get sick. And, you know, we have a story to tell you while you're there. Yeah. I actually remember watching The Princess Bride when I was homesick when I was a kid. It's the perfect movie for everyone. Recommend it. Go watch The Princess Bride if you haven't watched it recently. Sure. It's comfort food. It really is. And so because of that, you know, for our sponsor break this time, I thought that maybe what we could talk about is some pieces of music that maybe we have personally been playing on the piano kind of as comfort food for ourselves. Because if you're cooped up at home and you've got a way to play a piano or a keyboard, that's a great way to pass the time. Yeah. And that is a theme for Sponsor Break because our sponsor is Encoda, the streaming subscription service for sheet music through which you can, on any of your devices, access a huge library of sheet music, classical, popular, and otherwise. And that's a great resource if you are stuck at home with an instrument. Uh, Yeah, I, like you, turn to the piano to play for pleasure all the time. Well, what have you been playing? If you ask me, what is my, you know, desert island go-to comfort food to play at the piano? I have to say that it is the keyboard partitas by Bach. Hmm. For some reason, the one that connects with me deepest is number four in D major. A partita is a suite of a few different pieces that are named for different dance forms. The one that perhaps is the most relaxing for me to play out of that suite, number four, I'll say is the Sarabande. I can sit and play this to myself for an awful long time, and the thing about playing Bach on the piano is that kind of anything you do with it is right. You can make some interpretational decision about what kind of dynamics or lack of dynamics you want to use, and then you come back around the second time you play it through and you make the exact opposite decision, and they both bring out something interesting and worthwhile in the music. It's this like perfect crystalline form, which is something that's always spoken to me about it. So I'm going to single this out as my uh, Desert Island comfort food. 
What do you got? Well, it's funny. We didn't coordinate this. You said, oh, we'll talk about what we've been playing. That'll be the spot. And I said, great. I am less than most pianists, a person who goes to Bach all the time. But as it happens this week... I am certainly more than... <laughs> I am certainly more than most pianists. I think for a lot of people, it's the daily bread or whatever they say. It's like, that's what you keep on the piano right. all the time. It's good for the head, good for the fingers, just a good kind of home base. But I haven't been that way in the past. And yet, I have this past few days been going through the two-part inventions, which I think of as learning pieces from when I was a kid that I haven't really yeah, put in a lot of sure. time with because I thought of them as kind of technical, but I'm actually getting a lot of pleasure out of the combination of the technicality and musicality of it. And there are like six different editions in Encoda that I can compare. And in pieces like that, in Bach, as you said, you can interpret things in different ways. And there have been many publications of different editions of the score over the years that sometimes commit that stuff to writing. So, you know, the Busoni edition versus the Fisher edition, different fingerings. You know, if you're a musician, you know that there's kind of some technical problem solving to do and different editors propose different answers and usually you just have one edition that's the edition you own maybe two if you're hardcore and then you just commit to that or you decide you disagree with it and you go your own route the luxury of having seven different editions to really comparison shop and sort of develop your own opinions by sampling all these different people's opinions has been really satisfying and interesting to me and i'm grateful to encoda for making that possible yeah, if playing musical instruments is something that you have access to that perhaps you haven't done for a while but now are finding yourself with an opportunity to turn again to it, Encoda is just such a great resource because with a single subscription, you have access to all of it. You can go back to things maybe you studied when you were a child or <laughs> didn't study when you were a child but wanted to. You know, it's all there. You don't have to decide what to buy. Affordable monthly subscription gives you access to everything. So go to your app store and download the Encoda app. That's N-K-O-D-A. They've got a free trial, so you can check out the whole library first and uh, see what music you can make. You know, on this show, when we have conversations where we're talking about great craftsmanship in both the movie scoring sense and just in the pure musical sense, we're implicitly placing a value on calculation and constructedness, planning. And that means that we are sort of turning away from the opposing values of naturalness and spontaneity, which obviously, you know, ideally, you're capable of doing a lot of construction and planning and still putting across naturalness and spontaneity. But that's acting. That's acting. Actually, just being a musician in a casual sense has a real value in its casualness. You asked earlier, you said, who would have thought that they'd hire Dire Straits to write the score? Yeah. I think that the thing people turn to bands for, to popular music, is a sense of immediacy and kind of living musicianship that isn't overly mediated. This is not music that was written out for 60 players who were hired for a day to play. And I think the movie really benefits from that sense of immediacy. The voice of the music is the voice of one and a half people <laughs> saying, oh, look at that. Da -da -da -da. It doesn't feel like it comes from uh, an institutional yeah. non-person. I think that if it sounded like a big recording studio full of professionals being organized together, or even if you don't have that picture in your head when you're listening to orchestral music, you still have a sense of a crowd, an organized team. I liked the word you used, institutional. Yeah, yeah you have a sense of an institution that this is dependent on. Yeah. 
I really hear what you're saying, that having this really not invoke that institution opens your audienceship to this very familiar seeming story, opens you up to receiving it in a new way. Yeah. Which is what the movie is all about. Right. If your grandfather is telling you a story, you let it go deep because it's intimate. It is interpersonal. And I think that the music is prioritizing that angle of approach to the audience over any of the standards of craft that we at the beginning kind of laid out what it's failing to do. And I think, yeah, make that choice. That's the right priority. Absolutely. It's a choice that you can really hear when you play this music out of context of the movie, which I still am going to maintain if you do that. Like, here's some of this. just doesn't sound good to listen to but in the score to the movie it's part of something big all right here's something just a little i don't know i looked up mark knopfler plus guy fletcher just to see what other things they had you know is guy fletcher still playing with him answer yes did they do other scores together i was sort of curious do i think guy fletcher actually wrote and arranged the keyboard stuff or did mark knopfler really hard to say what the division of labor was but i did find that they were at least once co-credited as writing a score together and that was for the 1999 film robbie the reindeer and hooves of fire oh sure of course (laughs) And so this is some music from Robbie the Reindeer, which, as you might imagine, is a stop-motion animated, you know, cute Christmas special thing. (laughs) As I now am imagining. Thanks. It's the same stuff. It's synthetic orchestra adventure. But it's a cartoon. It's a TV cartoon. And that's what we expect. It wouldn't occur to anyone to say there should have been more the score to that animated christmas special was too cheap it sounded chintzy i will not sleep until i have destroyed robbie you know that's supposed to be an orchestra but where's the real orchestra it would be so stubborn and like perverse snobbishness to want something else here. And I think the strange thing about The Princess Bride is that it is a beloved big screen movie and we love those characters and we love those scenes and they feel like they run deeper than Robbie the Reindeer. And yet, I think it might still be the right amount of weight to give it is this kind of offhand ephemeral quality that just so much TV has so many things. John, you know, so many things are scored with one synthesizer because that is what is cost effective. Yeah, I definitely know that. <laughs> you you might have some personal experience. Let's not talk about quite how well I know that. <laughs> yeah, and you know, this movie, we said it's not a high-budget movie. It's a modestly budgeted movie. I think that Rob Reiner probably made a choice early on in the budgeting. We're not going to have a big orchestral score. We're going to have a small synthesizer score. That is going to work. You think that was Rob Reiner's choice? I do. What do you think? I really don't know. I honestly... I I think there's a little more to my computer game hardball take me out to the ball game idea than you wanted to give it. Yeah, I mean, I like that you're laying it out there to think about. No, but I think the impetus was just in Knopfler and in Fletcher that this is how they wanted to do the music. What was that? You showed me that... Uh, oh, yeah, let's read the, yeah. the liner notes here. This is what Rob Reiner wrote on the album. 
In thinking about who might create the music for The Princess Bride, I sat down and made a list. I needed someone who... I wish I could see the rest of the list, but... uh, wait for it. uh, I needed someone who could capture a film whose strange mixture of satirical humor, romance, and action-adventure, set once upon a time with a contemporary feel, had provoked its author Bill Goldman to say, I think this is an oddball film. Given the unique requirements of the score, I realized that the list of composers who might fit the bill was going to be a short one. Mark Knopfler was the only one who made the list. There you are. Although at the time I had not met Mark, I had been a huge fan of his, not only from Dire Straits, but his film scores of Local Hero, Cal, and Comfort and Joy were all haunting and very special. Have you ever heard of any of those movies? I actually watched Local Hero this week because wow. I had been meaning to watch it. Mark Knopfler's first film score, beloved by those who beloved it. <laughs> you know, none of those are fantasy movies. This is a strange call that Rob Reiner here is claiming to have made very deliberately. I mean, what was your response reading this? I was a little perplexed. It seemed a little far-fetched to me, but I guess I'd got to give it credit. I I think part of the reason this movie has lived on so well and that's aged really well it really has compared to other movies from 1987 i think it's because reiner had insight into tone that even now other people don't have if they try to go in this direction it's very well felt it's interesting even that goldman wanted to go with reiner as a director i saw goldman say in an interview that he hadn't seen any of rob reiner's movies and so he screened this is Spinal Tap, sure. and he thought it was so funny that he wanted to give it to that guy. And I thought, that is still pretty bold, because yeah. that movie has nothing in common well, with this movie, other, other than, than a subtle sense of layered comedy, Nope, and The Six-Figured Man. And the thing that's in the end of that liner note paragraph that Rob Reiner wrote that I'm going to read, since you stopped short okay, of reading it. Okay, go ahead, read the rest. Yeah, so he, he says that he picked out Mark Knopfler as the guy. He says, realizing that I had no second choice, I sent the script to Mark and held my breath. Shortly, I had heard back from Mark. He loved the script and was interested in doing the film. I was thrilled. I started to exhale. But he had one condition. What was that? I re-inhaled. He said he would love to do the film, but it was imperative that the cap I wore as Marty DeBerge in Spinal Tap be placed somewhere in the film. I told him the cap was long gone, but I can find a similar one and possibly place it somewhere in the little boy's room. He agreed. I completed my exhale. And sure enough, you can see behind Fred Savage in his bedroom, hanging on a lamp or something, is a hat that looks just like the like naval ship hat that USS he, Coral Sea. There you are, that he's wearing in <laughs> this is Final Tap. Just cause. <laughs> yeah. It looks a little different. I tried to squint to see if the right what the writing says. I could not read it. Good luck, everyone. <laughs> Well, apparently it's not the actual item. It's not the actual hat. Yes, this bit of trivia is misstated in several places. That is not the same hat. It's one made to look like it. And then at the bottom of those liner notes, Mark Knopfler's comment is only, Dear Rob, I was sad it had to end. I was only kidding about the hat. (laughs) Anyway, back to why would he hire Mark Knopfler. The score to Local Hero... Which, by the way, also a great comfort food type movie. It was very sweet. I'm glad to have seen it. Had not very much music, but really tone sensitive music, really well calibrated music. And since we're not going to do a local hero episode, we'll just play a second of it here. And the movie doesn't have any explicit fantasy in it, but it has a slightly magic realist kind of tone. And the music 
gets in that and kind of deepens it and inhabits it. And this sensitivity to how you could use a synth score just to kind of open up your chest and make you open to feeling without doing anything too aggressive. I think Rob Reiner must have thought what's going to matter in this Princess Bride movie is that people have to love the story without feeling that they were pushed to it. Hmm. They have to come to loving it themselves. It seems clear that it never crossed his mind that he needed to seek out someone who could amp up the adventure and amp up the fantasy. Yeah. You know, he did not put, you know, John Williams on his list. Right. Not just that he couldn't afford him, but that's not what this score was going to be about or do. And so with that in mind, when you hear the score doing it in this very cartoonish, simplistic, thin way, and, you know, the first thing you called out, rising diminished chords... Isn't that the right thing to do? Is the hokiest, most obvious, most... I guess so. I guess it is. Yeah. I'm going to stick to my guns <laughs> that doing this hokey obvious stuff with these hokey canned instruments doesn't sound good as music, qua music, to listen to on its own and to think about. But I also go along with you that who who cares? Why do I even bother to say that about this? Because it wasn't written to be music that you listen to. It wasn't written to do anything except to prop up this very peculiar perspective and attitude that this movie needed to work. And the movie works gangbusters. So what else can you say? Let me call out another moment in the score towards the end of the movie now that I liked and where I think he really knew just what ingredients to put together to sell what was happening. And that's the payoff to the big sword fight cue in the beginning of the movie that I talked about is when Inigo finally does catch up with Count Rugen, Christopher Guest, and exacts his revenge. That sword fight kind of starts with a similar move where it's stop and start. At first, he's just hitting the hits of the swords. Fight, 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 stop. And then they get a little more rhythm going in their sword fight and he kicks into some rhythm. And now it feels like we're into it. But this time he manages to take that Inigo theme, the Visitarte thing, the sword revenge mm-hmm. theme, and lays it on top of this action sword fighting music in a pretty effective way. Ah, hello! My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to I think you really can feel both the mythic vengeance idea and the sword fighting action idea at the same time in a pretty skillful way. Yeah, I mean, another sort of thought experiment. How do you think it would feel if the big compositional ideas, the framework of each cue was retained, but the instrumentation was kind of put through, you know, Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov had his shot at it and straightened it out. Punched up? Yeah, yeah. Orchestration doctor came in and then it was played by a real orchestra. Do you think that that score would feel good? Man, it's hard for me to say. I would be so interested to hear that. Yeah, I think because of the thing I said before, even that might not feel really like an improvement. I feel like it's impossible for me to say whether it would or not, both because it's such a counterfactual and because I know the movie so well the way that it is. But let's just say how bold a choice it was to not do that. It seems so easily imaginable that somebody could have said, okay, if you want to use this music, let's uh, 
get some real players in here. You know, you need to do something. You can't put a movie out that sounds like this. That could so easily have been said to somebody by somebody. I don't know if it was, but I do want to recognize that that didn't happen for worse and for better. All right. Another philosophical musing. I don't know. Haven't you had good experiences listening to music that is of no quality whatsoever because, you know, because you just weren't bringing a critical mind to it? I mean, this music to me sounds like video game music around the same time. It sounds like MIDI, sounds like the Sound Blaster era of my life. (laughs) It never occurred to me while playing computer games in the 90s that sounded exactly like this to be like, why can't they do better? (laughs) Why isn't this more correct? I loved those games and I loved that they had music and, you know, that was the end of the story. Do you feel like... um... No, you're right. I really hear that. The idea of there being music that you don't have to think about whether it's good or not is very comforting. Yeah. I mean, because the way that music works, just playing a major chord on the right instrument can have a very profound impact on the listener and can be good movie scoring if that impact is well deployed and it just doesn't have anything to do with what you learn if you're learning about music any kid can do that i feel like it's important to remember that you know taste i don't know sometimes i feel like taste is a crock like what's what's what, <laughs> how does that even how does that stuff even matter when we're just here to get the basic nutrients that even the worst uh, errors usually they got the basic nutrients in them well so let me just push back a little on the idea of you know at the end of the day who cares because music is music and all it has to do is be there oh yeah please I, it's kind of why i'm saying it push i take that to heart and i think that in order to appreciate this score <laughs> certainly in order to do an episode of our podcast about it you have to take that to heart and i really do but i also think that at the end of the day what this score shows is that what's really important in a movie score is making the right moves Mm -hmm. and the spotting decisions that we were talking about. I think that if there were more accomplished, you know, orchestrationally punched up music like you were talking about in this movie that wasn't as keenly sensitive of the timing and the pacing and the beats, it would be a cataclysmic failure. I think the reason that you're able to give it a pass for its chintziness and its silent movie organist quality is because it does have the skill of knowing where and when to be and why. And maybe that's the saving grace for why we should have this show in the first place, is because even when there's nothing really to talk about in the (laughs) composition of the music, you can still point to the nuts and bolts of how the thing has to fit against the picture that you can't neglect. And this does not neglect them. This is very carefully sensitive to supporting the picture. And if it's doing that, and it manages to convey this sense of casual, unpretentious instrumentation, and that spontaneous immediacy you were talking about, but it's really getting work done at the same time. I don't know, maybe that's its secret weapon. I agree that it actually shows a lot of that layer of traditional craft of just figuring out how to match things yeah. to the picture and the timings, which in some ways are surprising coming from Mark Knopfler, who hasn't really done that much of this. I don't think has done, I mean, I guess Rob 
Robbie the Reindeer, but hasn't done too many projects that are tightly scored that way. Yeah, that's what I was saying, that, you know, a pop musician might be tempted to just play pop music over stuff. And I think that when movies and when TV shows just have pop music slathered over them without thought for why it's there and when it starts and stops, I hate it. That really gets my hackles up in a way that hearing this less accomplished in a high compositional sense music ever does. The idea of the one man at the organ score being done by a guitarist is kind of funny and there were a couple places where he really plays it like that in the scene when he says i would not say such things if i were you there's these like on the guitar i would not say such things if i were you i in when i'm hearing that i feel that like deep lifetime of bond to his instrument that mark knopfler has with the guitar I liked hearing that, which is not totally foregrounded, but it's sort of the skeleton of the score. But you know what I've had running through my head all week? No. The riff from the beginning of Money for Nothing. That is some great guitar riff. And that's Knopfler, huh? Yeah, that's his, that's his thing. You know, speaking of that, I would not say such things if I were you bit, I, I wanted to say... When Chris Sarandon says, uh, she was once a commoner like you, but perhaps you will not find her so common now. I always think like, well, you're the one who called her common, jerk. <laughs> why Why are you putting that in everybody else's mouth? Because he's a jerk. That's exactly right. Because he's a jerk. That's the answer. You're, you're correct. I think let's just talk a little bit about the theme and the song that it is the theme of, sure. which is harmonically extremely simple. It's like one for one, and then it goes up and does a different one for one, and then comes mm-hmm. back. Right? Is that the whole song? I think so. <laughs> and how he loved her oh so much, and all the charms she did possess. I don't think these are good lyrics. They don't rhyme. <laughs> they kind of flaunt their not rhymingness. Yeah, these lyrics are like if you jotted down on a napkin like what your <laughs> lyrics might be about when you have time to write the lyrics. They sound like the placeholder lyrics, yeah. The ground she walked, and when he looked in her eyes, he became obsessed. My love is like a storybook story. But it's as real as the feelings I feel. Okay, it'll be about like our love is like a storybook story, something, something, and I'll, I'll, I'll figure out what's like a poetic way to say that later. <laughs> it is important to note that this song, and by extension, this theme, which is the main theme of the movie, is not credited to Mark Knopfler. Because he didn't write it. He didn't write it, although he produced the original recording, so he might have had some hand in it that isn't clear here. We don't know. But the song is by Willie DeVille, who uh, I don't know anything about other than that he wrote this song. And his voice sounds like this. It's him singing it. Yeah. He was nominated for best song that year which uh, sure. probably exciting for him yeah it's very primitive as songwriting craft goes and yet i think mark knopfler said something like he had played on this track and he had produced this album and when he was thinking about the project he thought you know that storybook song is perfect we should just use it and i think he was right and part of the reason that he's right is because it is so basic mm-hmm. One four one one five one. That's it. Yep. Staying really close to the simplest values of those chords. 
if you oversold what's going on there, you'd invite the audience to say, what are you doing? Everyone can do that. Those are the first two chords I learned. That's nothing. But it doesn't oversell it. It knows what it's got. It knows that it has some stuff that runs deep. And isn't that perfect? Isn't that what the whole movie is? That like, if you say there was a beautiful girl and a beautiful boy and they fell in love. Yeah, one, five, one. That's right. That is it. That is one, four, one. Yeah. So you know what, Andy? I think let's see if we can not oversell this. <laughs> we know what we've got. <laughs> I don't know how much more there is to say. There isn't. Okay. Boy, it's going to be tough to, after spending this whole time facing up to the fact that, boy, you know, music can just be music without having to be worth... <laughs> <laughs> paying that much attention to what are we going to how are we going to talk about another film score next time you know meet them where they need to be met that's true and I think that's what we did here and I'm glad because love this movie and in that sense I love the score and I want to apologize to uh, our friend from college who when I said we were doing this score said you know you made me feel terrible when I told you that I was a big fan of that score <laughs> in college and you said you like that score have you listened to it it's just stupid synthesizer stuff and this friend was very embarrassed by that and I want to apologize I had some growing up to do. <laughs> Please love this score. Thank you to the listener who suggested it. Absolutely. Love the things you love, and I love this too. Would I put on this album? No. Why, what, what's the point? Well, I, I don't no. need to put it on. But no, but put on this movie. That's what it's there for. Yeah. Love what you love. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> love is the greatest thing since uh, other than an MLT. Except for that. In the book, he says love is the greatest thing except for cough drops. Uh, <laughs> I didn't remember that. Yeah. When Billy Crystal clearly improvises the MLT thing, he says, when the mutton is nice and lean and the tomato, I forget, it is juicy tomato. It's so perky. He says, it's so perky. When it cuts back to him, he's saying, it's so perky, I love it. That is a different take, I suspect, from a different improvisation. And I... That's fair. Watching it was like, I wonder what he was saying is perky. I think the editor made it be tomatoes. I think he was saying it about something else. Not that interesting, but <laughs> I have been wondering. I liked the tidbit that Rob Reiner could not be physically on set when <laughs> Billy Crystal was shooting his scene because he could not stop from laughing and ruining all of the takes. He had to remove himself. All right, you're ready to draw. Yeah, the, it's your uh, turn. You've got the bucket. Whatever it is, whatever comes out of that bucket, it's going to be different. All right, here's some ominous music. This is a synthesizer warning you. You know, it really meets the tension of those balls spinning around. <laughs> I think it is sufficient for our podcast fake ball machine, this music. Sure. So. All right. Yeah. Next up is uh -huh. Bullet, 1968, score by Lalo Schifrin. Oh, wow. Cool. All right. It's different. That is yeah. different. That's a, another one of these jazz scores. That's the Steve McQueen movie, right? Yeah, that's right. I've never seen it. I've never seen it either, but I've always wanted to. Yeah, Lalo Schifrin, he's the Mission Impossible guy. Oh, that's going to be awesome. Yeah, the famous car chase in this movie is what I know about. Yeah, yeah. That'll be fun. That will be fun. Oh, good one. All right, I'm psyched for that. Great. Hopefully the listeners are psyched and safe and will stick around. Yes, please everybody stay safe. Stay home to the utmost degree that you are able. Watch some movies. Listen to some music. Listen repeatedly to this podcast. <laughs> sure. Go back, listen to our old episodes. I bet there's some that you skipped because you didn't know the movie very well. <laughs> now is your chance 
to watch Out of Africa and then hear us say, eh, I don't know if you need to watch Out of Africa. Well, you know, maybe just go ahead and skip to us saying that. But as you're doing that, please do go ahead and give us a review in your podcast app there. It continues to help new listeners come to our show, which we're eager to have them do. And uh, we're also eager to have them show up on Twitter at Score Settlers, where, yes, they can put movies into our bucket to draw out of, just like this one was. Yes, right. Even if you come out of left field, we will try to meet you halfway toward left field. Ooh, Field of Dreams? I think that's on there. Sure. Is it? Let's see. It's a movie about coming out of left field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, James Horner. Yeah. All right. Be well. See you soon, listeners. (laughs) We'll be back. Do be well. Till then.